To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Today, South Carolina's Supreme Court reversed a decision it made in January and allowed the state's six-week abortion ban to take effect. Why the reversal? The only female justice who wrote the January opinion retired, leaving an all-male bench. As state abortion bans multiply, the legal battle over the abortion drug mifepristone becomes more important for access to abortion. And the conservative Fifth Circuit has turned back the clock and rolled back FDA regulations, which made the drug more widely available. The fight over the abortion pill will end at the Supreme Court. An April order from the court effectively keeps the existing mifepristone regulations in place until the high court rules again on the matter or refuses to hear the case on appeal. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says the Biden administration is prepared to fight to keep mifepristone readily available. What we're saying is we're prepared uh, for a long uh, legal fight, uh, and that's the promise that we can make uh, to women, millions of women across the country right now. My guest is Mary Ziegler, a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. This was a divided ruling. Explain what the Fifth Circuit did. So this is obviously in the middle of litigation. So one thing to be clear about at the outset is that the Fifth Circuit did not actually change the situation on the ground. So the U.S. Supreme Court has issued a stay in this case that happened last spring. That state basically freezes the status quo with respect to mifepristone as the litigation probably continues on the merits to the Supreme Court. But the Fifth Circuit was weighing in this time not on whether to grant a stay, but on whether the outcome should be similar when the case is resolved on the merits. So the majority held that on the merits, the FDA lacked the authority to change the rules on mifepristone in both 2016 and 2021. So they would have essentially turned the clock back to before 2016 and reimposed a lot of restrictions on mifepristone. We also had an opinion by Judge Ho concurring and dissenting in part that would have gone uh, even further in a few different ways. Yeah. So this was a very conservative panel of two Trump appointees, one George W. Bush appointee. And Judge Ho, he wanted to invalidate the whole thing, the FDA approval. Correct. Yeah. So I'm not sure any of the judges really thought the FDA had the approval authority in 2000, but the majority simply thought that the plaintiffs had brought the case too late and that they didn't have any justification for waiting as long as they did to challenge an approval that came almost, you know, 25 years ago at this point. Judge Ho disagreed on that point and said the FDA had never had the authority to approve mifepristone in the first place. He also added a lot of thoughts on the Federal Comstock Act, which the majority uh, declined really to discuss at any kind of length. So the FDA is the agency that approves drugs. Why do they think that the FDA doesn't have authority to approve mifepristone? So the argument is that the FDA proceeded under subpart H, which is a regulation that allows for somewhat expedited approval of drugs. And the plaintiffs in this case, and ultimately Judge Ho, 
believed that this subpart H authority wasn't appropriate because, as they argued, pregnancy isn't a disease. Judge Ho said it isn't a condition in the sense that subpart H means. It's sort of a normal rite of passage. And he also added that, um, as the plaintiffs did, that mifepristone, in their view, is not safer than the alternative methods of abortion. So for both of those reasons, they argued, Judge Hoke ultimately concluded that the FDA didn't have the authority to approve mifepristone in 2000. Did they have any scientific backing for saying that mifepristone isn't safer than, let's say, a surgical abortion? Not much, right? I mean, this is a case where the majority's criticisms of the FDA were essentially that they weren't thorough enough. Not that they were wrong, necessarily, but that they could have gathered more evidence or they should have relied on different studies or they didn't have essentially holding the FDA to a higher standard than usually would apply to drug approvals or lifting of restrictions. I think Judge Ho's concerns were more almost sort of linguistic, right? That if you don't think pregnancy is a disease, the safety profile of mifepristone becomes less important, right? Because that's one of the the concerns that Judge Ho really prioritized in his opinion. I think this is an example where, you know, the science is getting either contested or ignored. And just for those who are not familiar, tell us about, you know, the importance of mifepristone to those seeking an abortion. Mifepristone is important in more than one way. Um, It's one of the drugs that's used in a majority of abortions in the United States. Pill-based abortions are also important from the standpoint of access in states where abortion is criminal because there are nonprofit organizations that are willing to send abortion pills into states even if doing so is criminal. Obviously, if those pills are not available, it becomes much harder for nonprofits to circumvent those laws. We've seen proposals for an alternative where mifepristone too become unavailable. Um, the other drug in that protocol is called misoprostol. So some providers are already preparing for misoprostol-only uh, abortions, which are possible. They're not as effective. They're safe, but they have more complications, and they're less effective than the current standard protocol. So that, that's a possibility should things come out a certain way when all is said and done. Let's just say at the end of the road, this goes against the FDA. Could the FDA just start another process and approve mifepristone, you know, through a full process? Yeah, absolutely. That would be very time consuming. Even honestly, the the Fifth Circuit, if the majority's decision were to hold, that is to say mifepristone didn't have to be withdrawn and could be taken under the pre-2016 protocol, even that would cause a lot of chaos because it's not clear if all the existing mifepristone would need to be relabeled. And also, you know, people would have to make multiple in-person visits to a physician. The FDA could, in theory, reapprove mifepristone. It's just that that process, especially if it's not the accelerated process would be time consuming and also would be politically uncertain, of course, because we've seen, you know, Republican presidential candidates signaling disapproval of mifepristone and they might have an interest in reshaping FDA to make that kind of approval process either slower or impossible. When the district judge's ruling came out, you know, many legal experts thought it wasn't in line with precedent. It was sort of in left field. Maybe I should mm-hmm. say right field because the judge is known for being anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ. It reminds me of the Obamacare decision where there was an outlier judge who made this ruling and everyone thought that, OK, the Fifth Circuit will knock it down. And then we ended up with years of litigation over that judge's ruling. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what we are seeing both in Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's the district judge ruling, and, and honestly in Judge Ho's ruling, which has struck others as very extreme, is kind of a shifting of the Overton window. So once a conservative judge takes out a position that in right field, as you said, instead of other conservative judges saying that's a bridge too far, we're not going to do that. Instead, we've seen them come back with decisions that are also really sweeping and unusual, but less so than the original, right? Or less so by contrast to Judge Ho's ruling. And I think that creates a new normal for the judiciary where conservative courts are going to go further, whether it comes to things like standing or merits or abortion access, but they're going to frame it as if they're not, right? Because they're not going as far as some of their colleagues. And just to be clear, they're making these decisions when the merits of the case haven't even been litigated yet. Right. I mean, especially um, the original opinion by Judge Kaczmarek was just a stay ruling. So there's a lot that can happen in these kinds of situations where we don't have yet merits rulings. And we don't have the only guidance we have from the U.S. Supreme Court is that there's been a state issue, right? So the signs are not full steam ahead, even from the U.S. Supreme Court, and yet this is still the kind of outcome we're seeing. I was wondering that, and I was wondering whether I was reading too much into the Supreme Court's deciding to keep Mifepristone fully available as the litigation plays out. Because it seemed like the justices might be sending a message to the Fifth Circuit not to go out on a limb again. Yeah, I mean, we don't know entirely, right, because when the Supreme Court issues a stay like that, they don't explain why. We don't know who voted how beyond the fact that some of the justices recorded dissents. So they're just Justice Alito and Justice Thomas. Other than that, we can just read between the lines. The one thing we do know is that one of the factors in granting a stay is who's likely to prevail on the merits. So the Supreme Court is thinking about that, right? They have to think about that in granting a stay. And so we can infer that at least as of last spring, there were a majority of the justices who thought the plaintiffs were ultimately going to lose this case. This ruling would interfere with states where abortion is legal. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh said the court had to be scrupulously neutral. Since he's a pivotal vote on abortion, how much depends on him sticking to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what's going on. I mean, I think, honestly, most of what will happen in this case will depend on if the plaintiffs have standing, because this is a case that, regardless of what you think about the merits, just has very, very weak procedurally. So I think it's fairly easy for someone like Kavanaugh, who would be torn, I think, on the one hand, between the fact that he probably is sympathetic to the plaintiff's arguments and the fact that he said he was going to remain you know, neutral, as the Constitution is in his view on abortion. He may not even need to go there with this case because it is so procedurally defective. It would be easy to just say, you know, sorry, I can't really get into it because you people don't have standing and leave it at that. (laughs) Explain the standing issue as far as the plaintiffs here. Sure. So the plaintiffs here are um, a group of anti-abortion doctors. They are in a group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. And standing, as most people may remember, sort of has to do with whether you were actually injured by a law, whether you have enough skin in the game to be in court challenging it. And the problem for these doctors, essentially, is that they're speculating that they're going to have an injury in the future. And that was ultimately the conclusion drawn by the Fifth Circuit. So essentially, the Fifth Circuit said, well, mifepristone is a drug. Its complication rate isn't zero. So some percentage of people who take mifepristone are going to have complications. Some percentage of those people are going to go not to their original provider, but to the emergency room. And some percentage of those people are going to end up in front of these specific doctors, as opposed to other doctors who don't have objections to abortion in the same emergency room. 
and assuming these plaintiffs are even going to be in the emergency room. So it's sort of inference upon inference upon inference, a lot of which aren't really very convincing. So ordinarily, especially conservative judges are much more demanding than that when finding standing. So most people are speculating that the reason the Supreme Court granted the stay was just because that case for standing is really hard to make with a straight face. And I assume the pharmaceutical industry would be up in arms because the court would be interfering with the FDA approval of a drug. Yeah, and also opening the door, by the way, to a lot of lawsuits about drug approval, because the argument that I just made about standing, you know, misopristone doesn't have a very high complication rate. Uh, The New York Times reviewed, I think, over 100 studies on the drug and found the complication rate was about 0.3%. So if the standard is any drug with a complication rate, you know, around what mifepristone is or higher, it's hard to see how you couldn't have activist groups challenging the approval of any drug. How would they enforce a ban on mifepristone being sent through the mail if organizations in blue states where abortion is legal decide to, you know, send out mifepristone? Well, were the court to ultimately conclude that the FDA didn't have the authority um, to approve mifepristone or alternatively that it violates the Federal Comstock Act for the FDA to mail mifepristone, then it would really come down to federal law enforcement enforcing it. So the FDA itself has enforcement authority and could theoretically prosecute people in blue states for continuing to mail a drug that was unapproved. Were the Comstock Act argument to be vindicated and you had a Republican in the White House, the DOJ could do the same. So I think the common denominator there you're seeing is a lot depends on who's in the White House. And that's one of, you know, my great frustrations as as a watcher of all of this is that we're not hearing Republican candidates asked about that. We're not hearing them asked about Comstock or FDA or the things that, in theory, a Republican president could actually do. We're hearing hypotheticals about bans at 10 weeks, 6 weeks, you know, 12 weeks, none of which are going to pass. But I think we're seeing in, in this litigation possibilities that really could be transformative were a Republican to be in office. Let's turn to the states for a moment. These fights over abortion are going on in both state and federal courts. What's the difference for those bringing these lawsuits? I think we've seen a deliberate attempt on the part of abortion rights supporters to focus on state court in challenging uh, state bans, in part because state constitutional traditions could be more expansive than the federal law. And because, you know, the conservative Supreme Court is unlikely to be sympathetic to arguments that abortion bans are unconstitutional. Conversely, we've seen other efforts by conservative lawyers to bring things into federal court. Um, the Comstock Act, which is a part of the Smith and Pristone case, is also a part of a whole bunch of other cases, um, largely coming from blue states where we've seen conservative lawyers fighting for local laws, banning abortion and saying that the state, the blue state, has to comply with federal law, namely the Comstock Act. So we're seeing, I think, a kind of chess match in terms of which court, which movement wants to be in. Which appellate state courts have ruled on abortion? So uh, we've heard from the Idaho Supreme Court, the South Carolina Supreme Court, the Oklahoma Supreme Court. There's litigation pending in other state Supreme Courts. Uh, We've also heard from state Supreme Courts that haven't changed their minds, like the Montana Supreme Court. And we have litigation pending in any number of places as well, Uh, Utah, Iowa, so this is a very active issue in state Supreme Courts, um, and we've seen 
you know, mixed results, but I would say surprisingly good results for abortion rights supporters, given that almost all of the courts where this litigation is happening are quite conservative. Even in states like Kansas and Kentucky, where there was a lot of hoopla because the voters defeated ballot questions that would have found no right to abortion in the state constitution. But even in those states, the bans on abortion are still in place, right? Yeah. Well, in, so th- there's been, I think, in those ballot initiative states, there's often been, so Kansas doesn't have a ban. Kentucky's vote was a little bit different because Kentucky was voting not to declare that the state constitution had no abortion rights. So essentially, Kentucky voters were saying, we're going to leave it up to our Supreme Court to figure out we're not going to prejudge. So that state's abortion ban remains in place. Other states like Michigan had abortion bans and voted for ballot initiatives that wiped them away. So I think we're seeing that it's not just whether or not you have a ballot initiative, it's what ballot initiative you have. So For example, in Ohio, coming this November, voters are looking at a substantive measure that would actually create abortion rights and also likely not wipe the the law off the books, but lead to its removal, likely by a court that strikes it down down the road. I mean, this is why the legal landscape, as far as abortion is concerned, is is so confusing to people. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's hard to keep up with it, even if you're trying It is. I mean, it's constantly changing. And I mean, I think that that's probably the most important thing people can do when trying to keep up with this is to realize that whatever snapshot you have is just that it's not a forever thing that the law can and will change. And I think that makes it important um, for people who really care about this issue to continue to, you know, think about it when they're going to the polls in particular, because this is not a situation where something will be resolved and you can simply put it on the back burner and ignore it in favor of other issues. It's going to continue coming up. Well, you certainly have an encyclopedic knowledge about abortion law. And as always, I appreciate your sharing it with us. That's Professor Mary Ziegler of the UC Davis Law School. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, Mr. Reed, do we have an agreement on custody or not? No. I see. In that case, there will be a custody hearing on the 19th at 9 a.m. Court is adjourned. Whether it's the comedy, Liar, Liar, or the drama, Marriage Story, movies about divorce have a lot of common themes. But one theme that none of them have is a couple not being able to get a divorce because of a shortage of judges. But that's exactly the situation in New Jersey, where there's a backlog of nearly 4,000 divorce cases, delays of many years, and blocks on any divorce trials in several counties, all because there aren't enough judges. Joining me is Alex Ebert, Bloomberg Law senior correspondent who's investigated this. Tell us generally about the backlog of divorce and family law cases in New Jersey. So the backlog of cases in New Jersey ebbs and flows over the years because of its unique political process. But right now, there's a serious crunch throughout the state in both divorce and family law cases. There are a backlog of more than 
4,700 family law cases and an additional 4,000 divorce and separation proceedings that are really, really posing problems to family attorneys. The state's chief justice has stopped civil and matrimonial trials in several counties. But are they moving ahead in other counties, or has it all come to a complete stop? Barely. So I've spoken with many attorneys in the state but are just woefully sad about the situation. It's come to the point where it's difficult to get any trial at all moving forward in a contested divorce case. And it's because there's so few judges to handle these matters that the judges on the bench, no matter which county you're in, have to prioritize the emergencies that come before them in family law cases over these divorce and separation proceedings. And so if it's, you know, someone in an abusive relationship or if it's an emergency over something that might cause harm to a child, then you're going to have that pop up and sort of interfere with the ability to run a trial. Then if you take that compounding issue over years of people not being appointed to these judgeships, you just get a backlog of so many cases, it's impossible to get anything done. One lawyer told you it's like families are stuck in limbo. Another that children are living in toxic environments. Yeah, these are really sad stories, June. And it can be anything from, you know, families where mom and dad are fighting to situations where a parent can't move their kid into a school district because they can't get an order from a court. Sometimes these issues threaten to the family structure completely. There's a couple instances where folks are scared that one estranged partner is going to take the passport of a child and actually kidnap them out of the country, which would make it very difficult to get the child back. And since publishing this piece, I've actually had people reach out to me with similar stories, and it can be really heartbreaking to hear what these families are going through. So let's talk about the big question. Why are there so many judicial vacancies in New Jersey? So there are a few factors, and I'll lay them out for you. But the largest one is this unique political process New Jersey has called senatorial courtesy. So we know about the blue slip system in the federal court, right? So home senators can refuse to allow the appointment of a judge in their home state. The same thing applies in New Jersey, but for the counties. But the strange and unique thing about New Jersey is that there are often more than one state senator that lives in a particular county. And so these state senators can use this ability to block a nomination to get something else out of the governor's team or other senators. So is this courtesy, is it part of any law? Is it part of a regulation? Is it just a practice that people honor? It is so fascinating when you raise that question with people in the know. It's a mix of these things, right? There's no law that it points to. So it's sort of an unspoken agreement among the Senate, and it's recognized and respected by the rest of the state government. And back in the 90s, there was a legal challenge that was actually foisted forward by the Whitman administration, the governor at the time, seeking to undo senatorial courtesy. And the Supreme Court of New Jersey actually said it's fine. You know, they approved of the process. And so it's gone from this handshake agreement among the political system to now being adopted and accepted throughout the state. And it's considered to be part of the state's constitutional fabric and framework. And it's 
fascinating because when you talk with people, they will say that it's sort of like a force of nature. There's not really anything you can do to get rid of it. And so it's just working through it as best as you can to get more judges on the bench. If this dates back decades, why is it causing more problems now? Why is it holding up more judicial appointments now? That's a great question. So there's a couple facets to this. The biggest, most important one is that the state has a larger crunch on the dockets right now because of the pandemic. You know, like every state, it took New Jersey a while to get used to remote proceedings. It's had to deal with all of the legal issues around remote proceedings, and it's still getting used to it. You know, we, we all are in state litigation. But because of that, there were more early retirements from judges as they were slammed with more and more work. And these early retirements build up because the state can't replace these judges fast enough to deal with these burden dockets. And so we've seen more early retirements now, people taking retirement before the state's mandatory retirement age of 70, because they're just overwhelmed and overworked. We live in a very partisan time in this country. Is that also at play here? Yes, there is an aspect of it that is partisan in that there isn't so much that the governor's office can do in order to put pressure on these senators. There's just less accountability for the Senate than there used to be, according to a Rutgers law professor, John Farmer, who was actually in the Whitman administration and was helping with these nominations. He said that they would apply pressure to a senator, go to the press, and hopefully the negative attention on whatever that senator wanted to hold up the nomination would eventually grind on that senator and the senator would have to give in and allow the nomination to go forward. Now that's not the case. We're getting holdups from both Democrats and from Republicans because, Farmer says, we're just less accountable now as a political system to the people due to partisanship. You spoke to a former family court judge. Tell us about how she described her workload. Judge Lisa Crystal, you know, what a fascinating interview. She described her workload as something that would terrify me. Constant interruptions all the time. And an incredible workload where you have to stay on point to get things done throughout your day. She said that in the morning she would handle about eight different family law cases. And then after lunch, she'd handle another eight family law cases. So we're talking rapid succession here. You never know how long they're going to take. And in between, she was constantly being interrupted by emergencies on her docket from people that needed to get out of a dangerous situation in their home or needed to protect the child. Then on top of that, every single night she was bringing home paperwork to prepare for the next day. You know, she said that after 20 years of doing it, she just couldn't believe that she was able to get it done. Let's talk about the spillover effect with other civil cases where you have elderly people and others not able to move forward with their cases because of the backlog. Yeah, this is such a strange spillover problem. But a lot of folks, they might not realize that that trial date is essential to building leverage to settle. So if an attorney doesn't have a trial date and they're trying to get an insurance company to pay up for a claim for an injured person, they're not going to be able to do it because the insurance company has the incentive of just kicking the can down the road. And that's not a bad thing. It's the insurance company is looking out for its bottom line. And if there's no need to pay money now, why pay it? 
But that means that injured folk are in such a poor situation because they're not able to work anymore or because they really need the money that they're now taking out what some would consider predatory loans, amounts with interest in excess of 30%, that are taken out on their future earnings from a settlement. And so over time, if these trial courts cannot set dates for these cases, that interest builds up and builds up and it eats into their settlements until they just disappear. So a Rutgers Law professor, John Farmer, told you that this courtesy appointment system, it has the potential to really undermine the public's confidence in the judiciary. What do they say on the other side of the issue? You know, what's the reason for keeping this in place? The reason for keeping this in place is to create a bargaining and leveraging system for the Senate. You know, for decades, it has been a way to get other nominations through. And so you will see a boatload of nominations go through at the same time that one of these judicial nominations go through. And it's because the senators use this as a prerogative to basically move the gears of state government. Without this system, you would have a much more powerful governor than you currently do. Right now, the Senate holds the cards, and because of that, both Republicans and Democrats that have courtesy power, they can use that to leverage different policies that they want and need. And they can also use it to improve the quality of the judiciary. You'll hear Senator John Bramnick, who's the the top Republican on the Senate Judiciary, as well as other senators, say that this process where you get so much scrutiny from senators improves the judiciary in New Jersey. And I think that the state bar leaders would agree. I didn't speak with a single attorney who said that the process led for worse judges. They all say the judges are pretty great. It's just there aren't that many of them. And it could take as many as five senators to agree on a judge before an appointment goes forward? It can, yes. And so the process can be arduous. It can be long. And it can be a single senator that holds it up. So you could have four senators that all sign off, and then one person, because of a policy, because of a personal beef, decides this person can't sit on the bench. In light of this shortage of judges, why are the governor and the state Senate leader touting the number of judges they've appointed? So the political system responded to our request for comment, both the governor and Senate leadership, by pointing to the results they've gotten in the past. They say correctly that last year the numbers were higher and the amount of vacancies was greater, and they've done yeoman's work to appoint judges and get the benches filled. But it's just not keeping up with the state's needs. So Governor Murphy and Senate President Sukari, they're in this tough situation where the legislature isn't present in Trenton right now. They're out campaigning. And it's a part-time legislature anyway. So getting folks into the room to hammer out these deals and get past any blockages in the courtesy process is difficult. So they point to their success in getting people on the bench, whereas state bar leaders and attorneys that are in the trenches say that it's just not enough. So what's the solution? Is there a solution? Throughout our conversations with the attorneys and law professors and the administration, What always puzzled me was, how is this going to get fixed? And I didn't hear a single thought from anyone that it could. It was really a matter of getting more judges through this arcane process 
than it was fixing the process. It's been a fight in the state for decades, and it seems like everyone has resigned to the unique nature of the political to and fro of New Jersey, even if it means the fewer judges are on the bench. A lot of investigation went into your story. It's really interesting. Thanks so much, Alex. That's Alex Ebert, Bloomberg Law Senior Correspondent. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.